0: uh Turn to Second Samuel. It's where we ended. We're in the we're in the last chapter of Second Samuel. As we we're not done with David's life yet. We still got about two more things I want to do with David. But uh, we come to the end of this um, this writing from the author of Samuel and what he's saying about David. And it's somewhat a little bit different as we look at it because you would you would expect kind of a just a real fanfare, but it, it kind of ends on a different note than what we what we would suspect. So we're in 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 24, and beginning with verse 10, and I'm going to ask you to stand together for the reading of God's Word. David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to God, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Verse 13. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in the land. Now then think it over, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time, designated seventy thousands of the people of Dan and Bersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity. And he said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor, Arana the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and on my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build the altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Uranah the Jebusites. So David went up. And as the Lord had commanded through Gad, When Arana looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he pleases and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Orana gives all this to the king. Orana also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Orana, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice the Lord my God burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen with 50 shekels of silver. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offering and fellowship offering. Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Lord add his blessing to the reading of his words. You can be seated. This son, this story that we just read is really the gospel. It's the gospel, but it's Old Testament. that shares the same thing. And I want you to notice that the author of, uh, of Samuel is giving us a biography of David and showing us the greatness of David. And then this last chapter, chapter 24, the climax of the book, if you're trying to show the greatness of David here, why would you end with this moral failure? Why would you end the book this way. Is he trying to make him look bad? Really not. He's trying to show the greatness of David. So I want to look at three things this morning as we look at this passage. So let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. It is holy. It is righteous. It is that which nourishes your people and gives strength to our lives. Uh, lessons not only to live by, but the very presence of God. So we're thankful for this word today. We ask you to bless our understanding. Uh, As we look at this together, may your Holy Spirit uh, open the doors of understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a judgment against David, right? We see it there. We're told in verse 10 that David counted the fighting men. That means he was going through all of Israel, finding those people who were fit, that uh, how many men were able to serve in the military, Counting them, and that was a terrible sin, we read. We say, well, what's so bad about that? Why would that be so bad? And here's what I think probably is the right answer to that. A volunteer army is what they had, is only used when you need it. It's there when you need it. Because people are invading or something is happening, it was defense. It was for defense, and it looked like Israel at this point was moving to having a, a standing army or a, a full-time army, and they would be starting to use this army like other nations around them use their armies because other nations had standing armies. But why count? Why, why is this such a sin? Well, here, here's what I think is happening here. So when you look at your neighbors, when you look at the nations that are around them, and we do this today, right? We say, well, we have, uh, we have 100,000 fighting men. You only have 20,000 fighting men. And if they're weaker than you are, you can invade. And if you can invade, you can enslave them. That's just the way it was done back then. And obviously today, <laughs> obviously today. You did it because you could. You did it because you could. Israel was moving in that direction, colonizing weaker countries in order to enrich themselves. But God never, 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 never said that Israel was supposed to be the terror of the whole world. In Psalms 48, it says Jerusalem is supposed to be the joy of the whole earth. The joy of the whole earth. God said in Isaiah 6 and in Deuteronomy 4, Israel's to be a light to the nations. Other nations are built on power and wealth. You're different. Israel must be built on service to God and service to your neighbors. You're to be a blessing to those around you. You're to be a testimony to my glory, that I'm your God. That's not where David was taking the nation. And that's why God's judgment. And by the way, the thinking that evokes the wrath of God, and you see this throughout the Old Testament, really, if you're looking at it, the thing that brings the wrath of God more than anything else is violence. Violence. Why did God send the flood with Noah? Genesis 6 says because the earth was filled with violence at that time. Crime, injustice. When God sends Noah to preach to the Ninevites, he says, give up your violence. Stop what you're doing. When God judges his own people in Ezekiel, he says, stop the violence and the oppression on one another. Do what's right. Don't be like the other nations. I think probably that's right. I think that's probably right as I look at this. Because it fits with other things in the Bible as, as I see it. And I, and I say probably right because I don't know. I know it's hard for you to imagine a preacher saying he's probably right. But I probably, well, I am right. <laughs> probably, maybe, <laughs> maybe. If Mary was here, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not, no, I'm not but really we don't know why. The the Scriptures don't tell us why, what's going on here. You can't count is all we know. That's significant. Don't do that. It's a terrible sin, David says. Because a big part of following God is just obeying God. It's just obeying God. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. We're called to obey whether we know why or not. Now that's hard for us, you know. In a lot of traditional cultures throughout the world, You never question authority figures. Just don't do it. If you're told to do something, you do it. No questions asked. You just do it. Here in the West, we question everything. (laughs) That's all we do is question everything. All authority. In fact, if you're in authority over me, you're only in authority over me because I elected you, I'm the boss. I elected you, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I want to know why, and if I don't think the answer you give me is a good reason, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. That's Western culture. That's Western culture. Okay, fair enough, right? Fair enough. We all understand that. But you can't take Western culture, our approach to authority, you can't take that and use it with God. It won't work. It won't work. It's devastating. And here's why. It's, it's, there's just some simple things. When your children were little, if you can remember back that far, uh, you'll say, you know, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And what do they say? Why? 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 And it goes on and on and on. Why? why? Why do I want to do this? Now, because they're so young and they're little ones, if they don't understand or they don't like what you're telling them they start to pout. Mm-hmm, we've been through this, haven't we, parents? They don't want to do it. Why? Why? Everything's why. Can can I give you your speech? Give you your speech on this. Here's what you say. You say, "Sweetie, honey, honey, I want you to obey because I'm 43." nine. Even though I make mistakes in general, nine-year-olds can't only obey adults when they think it makes sense because because if you only obey adults when you understand you're not going to live to be (laughs) ten. I think that's right. Seriously, you can say, one of the things you can say that, say, just say, uh, I don't want you to go play in the street. And they say, Why? And you say, You tell me why. You, let them think. Let them think. You tell me why. Why don't you play in the street, in the traffic? Let them think. But we're, we're just like that. Scripture says we're spiritual children. We're spiritual children. If there's a God who is infinitely wise, transcendent, Almighty then many of the things he commands us will not make sense to us. You say, well, there are things God says that I that don't make sense to me. Duh. Okay. Okay. Fine. If you say I won't obey God till I understand everything, you're saying I won't obey a God who's wiser than I am, stronger than I am, almighty. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. If God is infinite, if God is transcendent, it makes perfect sense that many of the things that he commands us would not make perfect sense. Does that make sense? If everything he said made sense, that would make no sense. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. In the garden, you know, we see God said, don't eat of the tree, right? He never told them why. Didn't tell them why that was true. Why didn't he put it on YouTube or someplace where we could go look at the reason why and we could look at everything that was going to happen in human history because of that and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I better not do that. But we're missing the point. We're missing the point. The test in the Garden of Eden was not about the rule, Don't. They broke the tree rule. That wasn't what was going on here. Do you know why God didn't tell Adam? Because that was the test. God was saying, even back then, I want you to obey me because I'm God. Not because it makes sense to you. That's obedience. You know, it's not obedience, it's agreement. It's not obedience, it's agreement. In other words, Adam and Eve wouldn't let him be God. They wouldn't let him be God. When you only obey those parts of the Bible that make sense to you, you're not letting God be God. Elizabeth Elliot, a great Christian writer, once summed up her whole life like this. She said, here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. It's real simple. God is God. (laughs) God is God. And he's worthy of my worship, and he's worthy of my service. And he, his will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond the greatest notions about what he's up to. He's God. He is an infinitely transcendent God. We don't know why it was wrong to count the fighting men. It doesn't tell us here in Scripture it was wrong and the judgment came. That's all we know. So here's where, here's where the mercy of God comes in. In this, After David does this, God sends his prophet Gad who says judgment's coming, but you get to choose. Verse 13, you can choose three years of famine, three months of military invasion, def- defeat, three days of disease and sickness and plague. David, you choose. And what's interesting is that no matter which of these happens, this is the end of Israel's dreams of being an empirical power. No matter what happens here, they're done. They're done. The first option, three years of famine. Famine means your, your wealth is wiped out. You know, your, your wealth is wiped. Back in Genesis, remember Joseph's dream? He had that dream there. Egypt got all the food. And everyone else had to come to Egypt in order to get food. and to. I mean, they were dependent upon Egypt. All the countries around. Egypt became totally in charge of all the nations. Israel's going to be dependent. That's door number one. Door number two, military defeat. Same results. You be the, under the boot of an invader. Same result. Door number three, you lose thousands of people in a the plague. There goes your army. There goes your army. No matter what he chooses, God is taking away cultural idols that were developing in Israel at this time. And God says, You can't put the emphasis on military power. God is going to make it impossible for Israel to go down that path. It's, it's actually, the theologians say, this is, this is actually a severe mercy. Now, why do they say that? It's a severe mercy. You know what the scripture says? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Right? He's keeping them from becoming. The evil things they were headed to be, where they were going. So he says to David, choose. So David chooses three days of plague. Now why does he do that? Well, it tells us right here in verse 14, he says, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. That's, that's the first thing. Literally, in the Hebrew there, it says his mercies are many. But then what does he say? Don't let me fall into the hands of men. Don't let me fall into the hands of men. The first two of those punishments means you fell into the hands of other human beings. David says, I trust the mercy of God before I trust the mercy of human beings. I just trust God. David is being theologically sophisticated here. He's being theologically sophisticated. Many people have a kind of one-dimensional version of God, judgment. And you talk with people. They'll say, well, he's angry, and he loves to smite people who don't obey him. He's he's happy about it. It's a one-dimensional God. The other dimension is the same thing, only it's the opposite of that. They have a God who just loves everybody. He includes everybody, accepts everybody, but he never judges anyone. And in this world of injustice... You don't want a God like that. You don't want a God like that. Now David knows that Israel will get judgment. But he says, in the end, I trust God and the hand of God to be merciful. I trust that even though he's a God of judgment, he has a strong desire to love us and to give mercy. I believe his mercy will triumph over judgment. By the way, the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 10, says that, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you remember when when Abraham, it's in Genesis 18, was talking to God, and and there's a whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and and God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the thousands and thousands of wicked people that were there, and Abraham says, Lord, would you forgo judgment if there were just 50 people that were righteous? And God says, well, yeah. And he said, what about 40? Oh, yeah, okay. What about 30? Okay. What about 10? Okay. So Von Rod, who's the commentator on Genesis, says as Abraham's talking with God about this, and and he keeps bringing the number down, God's graciousness begins to dawn on him. That God's a gracious God, and that he arrives at this astonishing fact that even a very small number of people who please God would stem judgment. Against the masses of wicked people. So predominant is God's will to save over his will to punish. It's predominant. And we see this all through scripture. David has has, has a sophisticated theological complex understanding of who God is. Here's a God who must judge but he can't wink at injustice. Can't just shrug it off, and he won't. And we don't want him to. We don't want him to. We want a God whose mercy is so great that he finds ways. He finds ways, as David says, to triumph over judgment. David doesn't trust human beings. Therefore, he says, let me fall into the hands of God. Let me fall into the hands of God. Perhaps the most horrible verse in this entire passage is verse 15, where it says, So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time, designated, and 70,000 people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 people. Now, what's interesting here is, and, and, and I think a lot of you have the NIV, the NIV translators, when they translated this, are trying to be sensitive to gender issues, which I applaud. And they put 70,000 people. 70,000 people. But that's not what the text says. That's not what the text says. The Hebrew text says 70,000 men died. Now think about that. What's this all about? It's about fighting men, it's about an army, it's about fighting men. God taking away the army. You say, well, how awful! How awful is that? That's, that's why I can't stand this thing about God. God killing people, the Old Testament, all that, thousands of people. Do you know if David had his way? Now think about this. You're talking about a severe mercy. There's, 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 just, there's just so much there that we don't understand about what's happening. If David has his way, those men were and thousand more are going to die anyway. They're going to die. Because they're going to die doing things that David wants them to do. They're going to go against the other nations. They're going to do some evil things. And not only are they going to die, but other people are going to die. Other nations are going to be uprooted. And there's things that are going on here. They're going to die doing battle. Oppressing people. Plundering nations that are around them. And the most merciful thing, and I know this is hard to think, the most merciful thing God could possibly do for all of Israel's neighbors Was to stop it. Was to stop it. The three days are almost done. Suddenly, David sees the angel of the Lord who's striking down people. And you also see this in the book of Chronicles, a whole other story of David in Chronicles. There's two books, Samuel, Chronicle. They all talk about David in the same story. When David sees it, he cries out in verse 17 Lord, I'm the one who sinned. Now we're going to get personal. I'm the one who said, These sheep, let, let judgment fall on me. Let the hand of God fall. On me. Strike me. Let your judgment fall on me. Let mercy triumph over judgment by making me a substitutionary sacrifice. What's wonderful is in verse 16, shows before David even said it, it shows God's heart. God, it says there, is filled with grief. He is a just God. He's a merciful God, infinitely holy, infinitely loving, not half and half, but both, completely both. In verse 16, we're told the Lord was grieved. He relented. I think your verse might say he relented, means he was grief. He was sorry for what was happening. So God has pain in his heart when he sees the condition, when he saw the misery. And what what does he do? He turns to David, and guess what he says? Essentially, David, he says, your theology is right. Your theology, what you think about this, is right. There needs to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Someone has to pay so that they can live. But it's not you, David. Now now think of This is the gospel. It's not you. So he says to David in verse 14, go up to the threshing floor of Arana, who, by the way, gives the threshing floor to David for a price. David puts an altar there, and they do animal sacrifices. Now now watch what's happening here. He goes up, and they start to sacrifice animals here. Later in, in, in Chronicles, in the 21st chapter, David buys the whole hill. You you know that? He buys the whole place. The hill and everything around there. Not just the threshing floor. He buys everything there. And they start to do animal sacrifices there. David buys the whole hill. And it is there that David builds the temple. That's where the temple was built. Right there. At that place. And so these animal sacrifices and whatnot go on and on and on. Year after year after year. And the book of Hebrews says that those sacrifices there did not atone for sin. They didn't atone for sin. But they pointed to the sacrifice. They pointed to the sacrifice that would atone for sin. God himself is grieved. And that word grieve there is usually associated with Tears. Tears. Nicholas Wartoshoff, Christian philosopher, says, the tears of God are the meaning of history. You want to understand history? This is what he's saying. God so loved the world, God wept over our condition. God wept over our condition. But he's so just that he can't just shrug it off. The sinfulness of humanity so God himself came in Christ, the ultimate shepherd, and what did he say? Same thing David said, strike me. Same thing, strike me. Let the sheep go. Let them have freedom. This is the go- It's It's the gospel. I told you, all these stories back here are about Jesus. They are. They are. Isaiah 53, we know the statement, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here's Jesus in the Old Testament. Here's the ultimate Davidic king who says, strike the king so that the the sheep can go free. And he did. And he did. And that's how his mercy triumphed over judgment. Because on the cross, justice and love were completely satisfied. Justice and love. God himself, the perfect sacrifice, right? Had to die to pay the penalty, but God was so loving that he was glad to die. He was glad to die. Mercy triumphed over judgment. David knew this intuitively. He understood this and he said, I'm going to trust God. I'm just going to trust God. I don't know everything, but I'm just going to trust God here. So what does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with me? What difference does it make in our lives? How does it actually change the way I live? A lot. A lot. So why is this the climax of the book when we look at Chronicles? Coming back to that. It shows David as being a moral failure. I mean, we've seen this with David all the time, but it also shows us the greatness of David. He says in verse 10, we've got to drop back to verse 10 here, I have sinned. Now, he said that before. We've heard that before from David. David says that a lot. I have sinned. The last time we saw this in Samuel, in 2 Samuel, it was in chapter 12, after he had that affair with his friend's wife, you know, with Bathsheba, and then he kills the husband. And he's got all this going on, and back then he repented, but there's a there's a the difference from that to where we are here. Back then he said, I've sinned after the prophet showed up and hit him on the head with a two by four. He says, I've sinned here before the prophet shows up. It's before the prophet shows up. There he said, I've sinned, and he knew what the consequences were. They were already happening to him. There were, there were things, you, when, you've, when, you, when you're sorry for what you've done because it's getting you in trouble, you know, we all know we're getting in trouble here. We got our hand in the cookie jar here. You realize why you're sorry? You realize why you're sorry? You're not sorry for the sin. You're not sorry for those people that you've hurt. You're, so, you're not sorry for what you're doing to God. You're sorry you got caught. You're sorry you got caught. You think it's repentance, but it's self-pity. It's not repentance. It's not changing your heart. Oh, I'm sorry. Look at the mess I've made. Look at what's going on in my life. This is hurting me. I don't like it. David had absolutely lost face with, with his nation. His reputation is destroyed publicly He's in front of everyone and and the sin is being announced. Bad things were happening to him. His son is going to die because of it. And remembering all those consequences. we, We remember the consequences. We talked about it. Of course we're sorry. But who are you sorry for? Who are you sorry for? In verse 10, here, David, look what it says there, was conscious stricken the Hebrew says his heart struck him a lethal blow literally his heart smote him the prophet is not hitting him over the head, the prophet hadn't even showed up the prophet is not hitting him in the head here, the law didn't smite him, he didn't even know what the punishment was or if there was going to be a punishment nothing was happening His heart smote him. This is a man, this is why it's there in the scripture, who's growing in grace. Growing in his understanding of God. And by the way, that sin which he wouldn't even admit, the sin of adultery back then, you always know when you're committing adultery. Come on. You know when you're committing adultery. This sin counting the defensive thing with the armies and whatnot, it's much more difficult for people to see. But his heart knew. His heart knew. He knew this was wrong. Here's what a spiritually mature person is. It's not someone who never has to repent because he or she never messes up. That's delusion. Listen. A spiritually growing person is not someone who repents less and less. A spiritually mature person is someone that repents more and more. Really. More and more. A spiritually mature person is someone who when you criticize them, even if the criticism is half true, there's half truths that are there. Right away they say, oh, 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 oh I, okay, I, I think you have a, have a point. And they're quick to admit it and they're gracious about it. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. A spiritual baby is someone who says, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But their real self-image is grounded in the idea that they're good people. They're together people. They got it all together. They're doing okay. They don't mess up much. And if you have to repent, it destroys their self image. It's traumatic. It's terrible. It's terrible. And that's the reason why we do everything to avoid it. That's why people have to hit us over the head with a two by four before we even admit it that we were wrong. We're wrong. But if your identity, uh, if we go back to Galatians, the whole book of Galatians, if your identity is rooted in the fact that you are a sheep, loved by a shepherd so much that he said, strike me, strike me. If you know how committed he is to you, committed to you, if you're rooted, as the book says, and grounded In love, if you know you're a sinner saved by grace, and someone points out that there's something wrong with you, you say, Of course. Of course. You have no idea. (laughs) It's worse than that. My heart's not good. Of course. Of course. Repentance gets you in touch with who you are, it doesn't destroy you. It doesn't destroy you. It gets you deeper into the grace and the mercy by which you live. You live there in the mercy of God. You live in the grace of God. What we have here is true greatness. You recognize it, you see it in Scripture. Churches screw up with this too. You know, they do. Many churches make the mistake of selecting leaders. They want someone who is competent. They want someone successful. What they really need is someone who's broken. They need someone broken who recognizes and has a knowledge of their sin and they're grounded in a greater knowledge of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the mercy of Jesus. That's what we need in leadership in the church. The best leaders, the most spiritually mature are people who repent most fully. Repent most fully. Without excuses and they are the most joyful because they know their standing isn't based on performance. Not performance. You have trouble obeying God? have trouble obeying God? Think of what He's done for you. Strike. Strike me, strike me, strike me. Let the sheep go free. He's freed you. He's freed you. So let's trust him. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for giving us all what we need to handle our failures. And fail we do. We pray that you would enable us, Lord, to to, to know the kind of freedom that comes from knowing we're sinners saved by grace. And we just place ourselves at the foot of the cross. Free us from keeping up appearances. Free us from fearing loss of face with one another, from having to be defensive all the time about our lives, to spin everything to make ourselves look good, Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would help us develop true greatness by focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us at the cross. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.